0: It's over. They're all gone. Frank, it's time. It's time you say what happened.
1: Frank, I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. Better watch. There's a lot of tough guys around here. Did he tell you? You're not afraid of tough guys, are you? I didn't think so.
0: Editor Thelma Schoonmaker has been one of Martin Scorsese's most trusted collaborators for half a century. And today, she's our guest on Behind the Screen. She also holds a record three Oscar statuettes in film editing for 1980's Raging Bull, 2004's The Aviator, and 2006's The Departed. A record she currently shares with Steven Spielberg's longtime editor Michael Kahn, as well as the late Daniel Mandel and Ralph Dawson. Scoonmaker first worked with Robert De Niro on Raging Bull, and most recently earned her eighth Oscar nomination for *Netflix's The Irishman, starring De Niro as hitman Frank Sheeran. Today, she shares her stories about working with De Niro and Scorsese, and describes her work on the crime drama. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Welcome, Thelma. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've been working with Martin Scorsese since very early in your career. How did you meet? Well, it's a very interesting story,
1: a series of fateful things that happened, surprisingly. I wanted to become a diplomat, and I took the State Department exams after studying political science at Cornell University and the Russian language. And uh, they told me I was way too liberal because we were the generation that was... Protesting against the Vietnam War and supporting Martin Luther King in the South at lunch counters. And, and so they said, you're going to be very unhappy here. Go to the USIA. And I said, no. So I went and did graduate work at Columbia University. And then I saw an ad in the New York Times, which you never see. Willing to train assistant film editor. And you never see that. When we hire people now, we ask our fellow editors who's a good assistant, and you never see an ad like that. So I answered it, and it was this terrible man from L.A. who had come to New York to butcher the films of great European directors like Fellini, Antonioni, Truffaut, and take sometimes a reel out of a movie to make it shorter for late-night television slots. And I was horrified by, I mean, I didn't know anything about film, but I knew that was wrong. <laughs> he also was quite a drunk, and I had to bring him a quart of whiskey every day as part of my job. So I decided to leave that job, and I saw an ad in the, uh, for the New York University film, a six-week course, and I decided to take it. It was a gamble. That's all the money I had left. And um, I wasn't on Scorsese's team. They They broke us up into 10 people to learn about how to make a little film. I wasn't on his team. But at the end of the six weeks, the professor said Martin Scorsese's film has been incorrectly cut in the negative. Is there anyone here who thinks they can help him? Well, I had been butchering movies for for this terrible man. And so I said, well, I'll try. So I went over and there he was, he'd been up for three days sitting against the wall just exhausted and i said i'll run you know the film against the negative and see what we can do we can add maybe 18 frames here and you've lost six at the head and finally we got it together in 40 hours he claims he claims i worked 40 hours straight i don't remember that but (laughs) that's what he says and um we got it together and he won a scholarship based on it which allowed him to go ahead and make more films so it was just all fate it was if the state department had taken me then i would never become a filmmaker sure.
0: so <laughs> what do you think makes your your collaboration so successful
1: i think the fact that it's the thing that makes our collaboration so successful is really trust that he could sense very early on in me that I would do what's right for his film, that it wouldn't become an ego battle, which it does sometimes between a director and an editor, and that uh, he could trust me. I knew nothing about editing when I met him, nothing. He taught me everything, and I still learn from him every day. Editing is his favorite part of filmmaking. If he had his way, that's all he would ever do. So he loves coming in the editing room after he's through shooting. I've done the first assembly, and then we cut everything together. And over the years, it's become much more of a collaboration. First, I was learning from him all the time, not only learning by doing films with him, but learning the history of film, which was so important because he knows so much about all the films that have ever been made. (laughs) And uh, if you ask him who the best director in Kazakhstan is, he'll tell you. And he's probably seen all his films, so he keeps also very much in touch with filmmakers today. They're very helpful to young filmmakers, has restored the work of many older filmmakers like my husband, Michael Powell. So being with him is like being in the best film museum or best film course in the world. So we're constantly Looking at things, he always has in the room a monitor which has TCM on it for the classic movies with no sound and out of my eye line, so it doesn't <laughs> disturb me. And so every once in a while, he'll say, "Oh, wait, wait, look! There's going to be this great shot coming up, or look what this director did uh, in this next scene, or look what this actor did." And so it's just heaven to be constantly discussing things like that, as well as the movie we're working on, and politics and all kinds of things. It's a very rich environment.
0: And it seems that that's the case for the entire team, which you've been working with for quite a while, like Tom Fleischman. And
1: Yes. I mean, of course, they're not in the room with us, which is too bad. In the old days, when we were working on film, you used to have an assistant in the room to keep the trims organized. Now we don't need to do that. And so in a way, it's been a loss for assistance not to be there listening to how we're discussing what we're going to do, the thousands of decisions we make every week and why, they would learn a lot from that. But that's just not the way it is anymore. He, he needs privacy. But it's a incredible environment. I'm so lucky.
0: <laughs> well, you bring up an interesting point, though, about training today. I mean, what do you think is needed in order to continue to train the next generation of film editors?
1: One thing is that they can watch what we're doing because they're hooked in, even though they're in another room. They can actually watch what we're doing. They can learn from that. And because you can... Everybody makes films now, right? Little three-year-olds make films. So they can make films much easier than I would never have considered doing that when we were working on film. It it was just too expensive, too difficult. But now... So they, they, they can experiment themselves and edit themselves. They could take a scene, I edit it, and re-edit it if they want um, for their own uh, experience. But it, I think it was
0: more interesting when they could be in the room. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of all the films that you made with Marty, which one had the most influence on either your career or on something it taught you about filmmaking? Well,
1: they're all so different, luckily for me. They're always a new challenge. I love them all. I would say that Raging Bull was probably the most earth-shaking film for me because I wasn't allowed to work with Marty when he first came out to LA because I wasn't in the union. So for 10 years, I didn't work with him. And um, I was doing mainly documentaries. And finally, he got me in the union and I came out to work on Raging Bull, but I had never worked on a big studio lot, and I had never seen crews, you know, of 200 people, and the film was so incredibly rich, so stunning, and particularly De Niro's performance just riveting, (laughs) that it was a whole new experience for me. It wasn't like making small films in New York, you know. Plus, it was so artistically brilliant in every way. The direction, the camera work, the beautiful black and white camera work by Michael Chapman, the use of music, the acting, the writing, the improvisations, which I loved and ended up being able to cut a lot. Um, so it was the richest experience, I think, in that way, of one film that, that I had ever had. But now I've just, I love them all. <laughs> um, Irishman, for me, is a masterpiece, and working on it was pure joy. Again, to be working with De Niro after not working with him for so long, and I wondered, is it going to be the same? Am I going to be so riveted? Well, he's even better. <laughs> I think he's in the the stratosphere in his performance in this movie. It's very subtle, and maybe it's not being recognized as much as it should, but it is a stunning performance. And then Pesci again playing a different, very different part, and... Pacino, who we had never worked with. I mean, it was such a rich experience. All the cast were excellent. Um, So this one is just as important to me as I think Raging Bull was uh, so many years ago. I mean, (laughs) it's wonderful that Scorsese is making great movies at his age. and my age, you know, a lot of directors would no longer be making films at his age or would have started to taper off at the age of 60 or something, but he's still going strong. (laughs) And uh, that's why I'm so lucky to work for him. It's a joy. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I I do. I do, and I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Oh, I'm glad to hear that.
0: Does Marty do a lot of takes, and would you talk about shaping the performance in the editing room?
1: He's taking less takes now, actually, I notice. But back in the days when he and De Niro were making those great films, he was experimenting a lot more with De Niro. Uh, They would discuss, you know, uh, let's try something different here, and then, oh, well, in the next take, let's try this. There was less of that on this film because De Niro was so seated in the part. He understood that part was in his DNA. And in fact, the reason that they finally decided to make this movie, they were thinking of making another movie first. But when De Niro read this book, I Heard You Paint Houses, he was so taken with the character of Frank that when he came to talk to Marty about it, Marty said he was so emotional in the conversation that he said, ''Oh my God, this is gold. We have to do this.'' And so Bob, on this film, was mainly take one, frankly. He was just so in this part. And I cannot understand how he does it. (laughs) Sometimes I can't understand how an actor works, but Bob's acting is mysterious and uh, brilliant in a way I've never seen before. So working with him again has, you can imagine, has been really
0: wonderful. <laughs> An embarrassment of riches. Yes.
1: Well, every everybody in this movie. So the job really was, aside from the very interesting style that Scorsese conception he had for this movie, which is very unusual at this time, The richness of the acting it was our job to make sure that we honored that and that we got the absolute best out of it that's a nice situation to be in sometimes you're working with an actor who is not quite up there and you have to struggle to create the performance and usually you can that was not the situation here and of course all those three main actors are such great improvisers I love improvisation and on Raging Bull, I was lucky because there was so much improv. And sometimes Scorsese could not get two cameras into the room. They were once shooting in the kitchen of the actual Jake LaMotta's house in the Bronx. And he couldn't get two cameras in. When you do improvisation, you need to have two cameras, because if one actor goes off on some wonderful riff, you have to have coverage on the other actor and he couldn't so I had tons of coverage on De Niro improvising and tons of coverage on Pesci but I didn't have they weren't always on the same wavelength (laughs) so it was a real puzzle to put together but finally I did it and I loved doing all the improvisation in Raging Bull. Those two actors, De Niro and Pesci, are some of the greatest improvisers in the world and uh, so there was some of that in Irishman, too. And of course, even Pacino and Bob were wonderful together. Wonderful. They were really listening to each other, too. They really like each other. They're they're very good friends, and you could feel that in the performances. And I thought Scorsese was so brave, the scene, we call it the pajama scene, where, because De Niro is his bodyguard, he always sleeps in the same room in a separate bed. And I thought it was so wonderful that Marty wanted to do that scene in their pajamas as they're going to sleep and not worry about whether people would think they were homosexual or what. No, present it the way it is and the way they express love for each other in that
0: scene is so special. When you're working on scenes that have a lot of improv, how does that impact you in the editing room?
1: It can sometimes, it did on Raging Bull take a long time. Right (laughs) On Irishman, no, it was uh, because he was always shooting with two cameras, it was fine. And, of course, when you shoot with two cameras for improvisation, you can't move the camera. Otherwise, the editor would never be able to get it. (laughs) So the camera is locked down for improvisation. But, you know, there's so many great scenes in Irishman where it's locked down and the performances are so amazing that it doesn't matter, you know? And that was his concept for the film, stripped down, very plain, no fancy editing, no fancy camera moves, the violence very quick, over with quickly and shot very blandly often in wide shots to show the banality of the violence that for the character of Frank he's fallen into a job as a killer and it's a job so if he does it well then he gets another job morality is not necessarily entering into what he's doing his daughter played by Anna Paquin reminds him of what is wrong with what he's doing. But Scorsese wanted to do the violence very simply to show the banality of it, equate it to the banality of the way people carrying out Hitler's orders in the Holocaust. It was a job. You know, how many canisters of gas do we need to get rid of this many people? Uh, The horrible banality of it. So he wanted to show that He wanted the movie very, very simple so that the characters were what you latch on to and you go on a very slow build towards the end. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. I know you read a lot of things about me. I just want to say I'm sorry. I know I wasn't a good dad. I know that, I know that. I was just trying to to protect all of you. From what? You didn't see what I see, what I've been through.
0: Editing is often referred to as the final rewrite. Mm. In that process, were there any scenes where you felt that you were explaining too much and you removed them or scenes that were added or placed in a different spot?
1: Surprisingly, this film, which is complex because you're going back and forth between an older, the older characters and the younger versions of them, and then intercut with that is a long drive to Detroit, which nobody realizes in the beginning is actually a doomed drive that the mafia has already decided to kill Hoffa and... The De Niro character doesn't know that. He's just driving to Detroit. (laughs) And intercutting that, I was worried whether the audience would get lost. But Marty was quite adamant. He said, No, it'll work. And it does. I've interviewed people and asked them, Did words are confusing? No, they went with it. So, because of the beautiful way the film had been thought out in the writing, and then of course, as he shot it, it came together incredibly quickly. We didn't have to struggle rewrite. We did rewrite the voiceover a little, but not a lot. We didn't have to drop scenes. We dropped some little scenes, but not like in some movies we've had to drop a lot or restructure the film entirely. That was not the case here. It's interesting.
0: Would you take us through cutting the scene during which Frank is instructed to kill his friend Jimmy Hoffa and then the tension that you build throughout that scene leading up to the act?
1: Well, two of my favorite scenes in the movie are what we call the salad scene, (laughs) where you see Joe Pesci making salad and hinting to De Niro that the Jimmy Hoffa character is going to be killed, which is absolutely devastating for De Niro because Hoffa is his best friend, along with the Joe Pesci character as well. But that scene is just one of the most beautiful Pieces of filmmaking I've ever seen. Um, it's very simple, and the language is oblique. You know that, which is the way the mafia. They don't. They never say you're going to kill somebody. They never say murder. There's always very oblique the language, and De Niro's reaction I just think is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So he is alerted that something terrible is going to happen. He doesn't know he has to do it yet. Um, he lies awake at night trying, thinking of phoning Jimmy to warn him, but Joe Pesci had said to him just at the end of the scene, don't call him. Beautiful performance on that line. (laughs) Then uh, my other favorite scene is the breakfast scene, as we call it, where it starts out with such a banal line, uh, cornflakes are total. Then gradually, De Niro begins to realize from what Joe Pesci in an oblique way is telling him that he's the person who's going to have to kill his best friend and his acting in that movie is sensational. He doesn't move but you can feel on his face everything he's going through and only at the end of the scene he sits back and there are tears in his eyes. I saw the dailies on this scene and I was just stunned. And I knew they shot the end of the scene first, so I knew we had something really great. <laughs> then he goes to the plane that's going to fly him to where he has to kill Hoffa. And the look on Bob's face in that plane is something I've never seen. I can't even describe it. The pain he is in, the beautiful way he expresses it with no words, just a look on his face. So those are my two favorite scenes in the movie. I just think they're stunning, and um, they're very simple
0: because what's going on is so powerful. And in the edit, you kept the camera on him so that we all experience that and see we that held amazing performance. We on of him
1: in the plane far longer than we should <laughs> in ordinary pacing of a movie because it was so powerful. We just couldn't cut it. And also that happens earlier in the movie where the De Niro character has been hired to blow up a laundry and then he's called on the carpet about it by Harvey Keitel. And the editing in that scene is very slow because the deadly pauses in between the questions and the answers is what is making you understand that De Niro realizes he's in big trouble. <laughs> so normally you would have c- cut that scene faster, but those pauses, those deadly pauses, and the lack of reinforcement he's getting from Joe Pesci, who's just watching him and not interfering, is that that was the style of the movie, and for a good reason. But unusual, very unusual. It's a very unique movie.
0: You mentioned Anna Paquin earlier, and that dynamic between her Mm -hmm. character and her father, Frank, is Mm -hmm. so critical in the movie. Would Mm -hmm. you talk about shaping that?
1: Anna Paquin said to Marty she wanted to be in the movie, and she didn't care if she had any lines or anything. (laughs) As it turns out, she has only seven words to say. However, they are so powerful. And from the moment she enters the film, first she's the young girl Lucy Galena, who played her as a little girl, is terrific. As You see that she is horrified by some violence she sees her father carry out. And that's the beginning of her character being the moral voice that her father does not seem to recognize he needs to listen to, which is why he ends up alone at the end of the movie. So she was wonderful, little Lucy, really good. And then Anna, when she comes into the film, you, you see her, and she registers like crazy. I don't know how that happened. But in the scene, the powerful scene in which uh, her father comes back into the family after he has killed Hoffa, and she knows, she knows he did it. The rest of the family doesn't, but she knows he did it. And when he says, I have to call Hoffa's wife, And his wife says, you haven't called her yet? Which is very odd in such a friendship. All she says, Anna, is, why? And Bob is brilliant there. He turns to her and says, why what? Why haven't you called Joe? That's the name of Hoffa's wife. That's all she says, but it is so powerful, the way she does it. And the look on her face uh, throughout is just perfect. She knows, she knows. And his struggling with trying to deal with it is so beautiful, the way he does it, the look on his face. And then the phone call with Hoffa's wife. (laughs) I couldn't believe that when I saw it. And there's a jump cut there, which you normally are not supposed to do, but the way, the take in which De Niro hears her voice on the phone, she says hello. His reaction to that and the way he lifts the phone up to his ear was so perfect. And then the take where he actually carries out the whole conversation with her, which is heartbreaking, was from another take. And we tried to morph it, we can do that sometimes, we can make it look as if there isn't a cut, but we finally gave up and Marty said, just leave it as a jump cut, so we did. (laughs) There are quite a few jump cuts in this movie, which is for the brutality of the world of the mafia
0: is not necessarily wrong, I think. You mentioned film preservation earlier, which is so important to Marty and to you, and I know personally you've been preserving the films of your husband, Michael Powell. Um, Would you tell us about your initiative?
1: Well, Marty was the person who founded the Film Foundation, which was uh, founded to restore films because the studios were not doing enough restoration themselves. And it can cost a lot of money for a very expensive color, technicolor film, for example. And he's been able to raise this money. I don't know how he does it, but he does, <laughs> and they, the Film Foundation has restored a tremendous number of films because three of the really big ones that were necessary to restore, they had mold on the negative, and it was really urgent. Happened to be my husband's films that he made with his great partner, Emmerich Pressburger. I got involved heavily in the actual shot by shot restoration of the movies, not removing the mold and the scratches and the bad splices, and uh, but in the color timing of them. And that was a great joy to watch a film that has been seen in not very good prints for a long time to create digitally, it can only be done digitally, a vibrant, wonderful resurrection of what it looked like in Technicolor at the time was just a joy. So it's very arduous work but I was always working with great people, Ned Price and Ray Grabowski, uh, Warner Brothers, helping uh, to guide me and for me to learn how to make the stuff come back. So it's become a great passion of mine and we've been able to restore several more films aside from the three great Technicolor ones. And we'll just keep on doing it, I hope. (laughs) And those titles are? the The three Technicolor restorations were, first of all, The Red Shoes, which is a film that is so important to Scorsese. He says it's in his DNA. He learned so much about how to make movies from that film. And then we restored The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, a magnificent film. And then The Tales of Hoffman, based on the opera, but in a very revolutionary version of it and now we've just restored one of the favourites of the fans of Powell and Pressburger. I know where I'm going, a black and white film about Scotland, and it's the most romantic of the films Powell and Pressburger made. And we've just finished restoring that. And then Bluebeard's Castle, which is based on the Bartok Opera, again, made for 25 cents when my husband's career had been ruined by the movie Peeping Tom, and he couldn't make movies anymore in England. And somehow, 10 or 15 years later, his, his art directors, who was German, said, come to Germany, we have money to make Bluebeard's Castle. And they had no money and two students to help them. And so they, you, it's unbelievable what they did with plastic and styrofoam and, and with nothing.
0: It's very, very powerful. So we've just finished that one, too. Do you feel like everyone in Hollywood understands the urgent need to restore our film history? And what do you think still needs to be done?
1: No unfortunately I think it's getting worse. The Fox library has been acquired by Disney and they're not restoring anything from that anymore. Fox had a wonderful group of people restoring their films with the help of the Film Foundation. Marty has for many years appealed to the studio heads to please look at their libraries and restore these great works because we're going to lose them if they don't. And. Uh, It's Unfortunately, it's it's not well enough understood how very essential this is. Plus, digitally, we also have to remember, we are restoring these films digitally. Because we can do so much, we can take a shrunken sprocket hole and make it possible for that piece of film to run through a machine. We can do all kinds of incredible things with color and repairing things. But Digital is not stable either. So you have to, every five years, transfer the restoration to another medium or to at least another copy of it because digital absolutely just
0: suddenly vanishes. That's right. And And there have been reports of that happening in fewer than five years in some cases. Even the
1: Harry Potter, an early Harry Potter film. Now, they have backups for it, but the original negative, you know, the original digital uh, is vanishing. Now, most people don't understand this and there's going to be a big black hole, I think, in our history anyway. Your personal photographs, your tax returns, uh, every which everyone would like to disappear, I'm sure, but that is all possibly just going to vanish one day. And it's pretty scary. Now, I mean, and there are people like Texas Instruments who started telling us about this long ago, Right. but most people thought, oh, digital, fine, no problem. No, you have to be personally responsible for anything that you have scanned or digitized of your own personal records, for example, to say nothing of what you do with your work. But you have to be responsible to constantly monitor
0: and transfer it every five years to to make sure you don't lose it. And the example you used was Harry Potter, which is a big film where there is backup and a studio behind it, but there are so many independent films that perhaps that might not have happened. Yes, and
1: independent filmmakers don't have the money always to do it. So it's a very scary area. (laughs) It really is. And we're doing everything we can to try and raise consciousness about it. But uh, it's an uphill battle. Is there an upcoming project you'd like to talk about? I'm reading my husband's diary now. which he started keeping after his career failed. And, uh, you know, Marty came and saved him. He was absolutely destitute, this great filmmaker. And Marty came and found him and searched for him in, in Britain and then resurrected his entire body of films, brought him to America, resurrected Peeping Tom, the film that ruined his career and gradually has just generated huge interest in the films which is wonderful. But the diaries he started keeping after his career started to fail, and so they're very important for me to work on now in the period between now and our next movie. He was a great writer, my husband. He wrote a beautiful autobiography, which I helped him edit, and he would have become a writer, except that his mother took him to see a silent film, and he fell in love with movies, and so he became a film director. But in his autobiography, you can see how wonderful a writer he is. A lot of filmmakers, when they do their autobiographies, are not great writers. It may be fascinating, but it's not. But this is great writing. And so it's wonderful for people now to be able to read his thoughts when I can get them published. And, of course, it's beautifully written, because in those days, people were taught how to write. So it's no problem for me to decipher what he's saying, And I'm sitting in his cottage that he loved so much. So reading and hearing his voice, it couldn't be better. (laughs) And I have to do it in the period between this movie and the next, so I'm hard at it.
0: (laughs) And is there any documentary work?
1: Yes, we're trying to make a documentary about Powell and Pressburger, this incredible partnership that will be centered around Marty's incredible knowledge of their films and how they impacted him so deeply because they're very unusual. Each one is very different. They were quite unusual for the time in England. People were making more conventional films. But each one of the Powell-Pressburger films was very unique, and there's no sentimentality, powerful emotion, but no sentimentality, no cliches, just very unusual examinations of the gray area of human beings, not the bad. There's no villains and no heroes in the films of Powell and Pressburger. They're interested more in the way we all are. (laughs) So that was a huge influence on Scorsese. And the great filmmaking, the great writing, the great filmmaking, the incredible use of the camera, the incredible use of color. And you never know what's going to happen next in a movie like The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, where Deborah Carr, very young Deborah Carr, 24 years old, plays three different women that he marries. And uh, he loses them all, but then he marries another woman who looks exactly like the woman that he lost. And uh, it's an extraordinary movie. And you never know what's going to happen next. Uh, Just so powerful. And that's why Marty studying these films, and the films of Fellini, and films of Kurosawa, and the films of all the great directors that he reveres, that's what taught him how to become a director. And I just wish more students would would understand that. I understand from film professors that when they say the next film is going to be in black and white next week, they go, oh, don't want to look at black and white movies? 85 years, which contain tons of masterpieces in them. Right, absolutely. And they don't want to look at black and white. I mean, so I just hope that more and more Young people will take the example of Scorsese, how he learned to become a filmmaker by looking at these movies on the wonderful program Million Dollar Movie that used to run it nine times in one week. And Marty's mother would start screaming, And if you run that thing one more time, I'm going (laughs) to kill you. But he was just eating it up and learning, and that's what film students should
0: do. Thank you so much for joining us.